I've just had a once in a lifetime moment speaking to Anya Heinmarsh, the bag designer, the phenomenal businesswoman and entrepreneur. I have to say this is a moment in time for me. I confess to her that I would hold her as one of the best brands out there globally, actually. She's someone now who inspires me every single day to be better, to be surprising, to delight and to also have purpose behind everything we do and everything we build. I am not ashamed to say that at the end of her letter, she had to run off to a meeting and I had to have a bit of a cry because I have long admired this woman and I just got to spend a whole entire hour with her. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Anya. This is such a pleasure. There is so much I want to talk to you today about, and I know that we've been going back and forwards to try and make this happen, but welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm just not going to try and fangirl too much at this stage, but I am, as you know, one of your biggest fans, and I've been to your village a couple of times. I actually managed to say hello that day while I was having my hair washed, and we're going to talk about the village because it was actually, well, we're going to talk about the village, but actually where I was getting my hair done, was to launch your brilliant new book, which we're going to talk about later. But tell me about The Village and what the reaction has been like, because as I said, I've been there twice and loved every single second of it. Oh, thank you so much. I remember your amazing blue jumpsuit. It, it's really exciting, actually. It's kind of funny. It, it's, um, you know, obviously we've opened a lot of stores over the years, but this is a, a long held dream to open this little collection of stores that actually includes a, a little cafe and what we're calling a village hall, which is a sort of ever-changing space, um, which currently is the hair salon, as you know, sort of celebrating the book, which is called If In That Wash Your Hair. So this sort of makes sense. It's really fun. I think it's so important, so, so important to be able to have a place where you meet your customers. Uh, it makes absolutely sense. And there's something about a, a kind of a calf, which is super chilled and relaxed, but rather beautiful and lovely and delicious, incredible ingredients and, and lovely food, where for me, it's just really fun to be able to see people. So I'm loving every second of it now. I'm a calf owner. It's not a greasy spoon. Let's just say for anyone that wants to go there, you will see the attention to detail and the playfulness because the village, of course, your village has googly eyes on the lampposts. I mean, where else would you see that? The little touches. I had my biscuit with the stamp on it. I had my sugar lumps had the googly eyes. I mean, the people in there were superb. Has it long been a dream of yours to create an immersive shopping experience? Because that is the thing about you, Anya. You 
always take things to another level. Thank you. I mean, I think taking things to another level is probably what my children hate about me most. <laughs> that might be the argument or the, the tidiness <laughs> or the, you know, will you move your shoes out of the kitchen? It's really fun to do. I think, I mean, it's an interesting moment, isn't it, sort of speaking seriously, where anyone who's in retail, as I have been for, for many years, is, is you know, sort of scratching heads and thinking, actually, what it, what is the future? You know, how does it make sense in such a digital world? And I've sort of felt, you know, I think, as you know, we, we sold a bit of the business and bought it back in 2019. And I was quite clear, actually, then, which is, you know, pre-pandemic, that it was no longer necessarily very modern, perhaps, to have the sort of 60 stores that we had around the world, which felt a little bit cookie cutter uh, and mm -hmm. perhaps not as authentic as having a space where I'm there every other day um, and I'm sort of fiddling with the window displays and really sort of engaged in it and know all the staff by name and so on. And I just really wanted to go back to that. And I think in a digital world and, and a post-pandemic digital world, that there needs to be a reason for retail. There needs to be a reason to visit. And I think that uh, it felt right to pour all of our sort of creative energy into this little village um, and to make that a sort of a touch point for the brand where people can go and enjoy and experience and learn and, and hopefully engage with us. And then the digital experience is different. There needs to be a reason for, mm. for retail, I think. It this is just fascinating because industry is changing. You've got the dinosaurs almost leaving the high street, haven't you? We've got a stage where we're going up to high streets where they're boarded up. We've got digital, we've got online soaring. We're trying to find our place, aren't we? In this post-pandemic world, it even seems more crucial that there are reasons for things. Do you think that this is the beginning of what we're going to see on the high street? I think yes. I mean, I think two things. I think that the brands that are going to suffer are those that offer the same online as they do in the stores, because then really, what's the reason to visit a store? Mm. It's so mm. convenient now, it's hard to argue with that, really. So I think that the digital experience is just very winning. So I think, therefore, it's going to be about things that you can't get online or perhaps the smaller brands where perhaps the, the more experiential or the more uh, perhaps where the online presence isn't so slick because they haven't got the infrastructure. So therefore, I think that if you like our high streets are going to be infilled, I hope, with creativity, actually, and experiential fun and the things that you, you know, you really can't do online from getting your haircut to eating. It's, I think, a super exciting time of <clears throat> sort of fertility in a way. Yeah. Rather than having the same store on every high street in the, in the land, they, it, it, it gives a reason for towns. You know, you want to go to that place because it's amazing embroidery and there they've got incredible yes. special donuts and there they do ice cream and there they've got crazy haircuts and tattoos and you know it's really it should be all of that so I think it's it's an exciting moment even though it feels a bit unsettling but I also think to sort of just a last point to add to that is that we have to accept that things change you know when machine guns were invented the sword makers were probably having a pretty bad day but it happens you know there are these step changes in, in development and the internet is, is that it's an industrial revolution really it's an internet revolution mm. so there are these changes we must embrace them. We can't just sit still and pretend they're going to go where they're not. So embrace it and be brave and be creative, I think. I want to go back a bit, actually, because you were born into an entrepreneurial family. Your father had a plastic business and I read that he invented the first plastic flower pot, which is just unbelievable to think. But I also read that during your upbringing, you were given this Gucci handbag, which really sparked something in you that made you feel something and started your passion for accessories. Can you just tell me a bit about your upbringing and what it was that you felt? Because it really did, for you, spark the rest of your life. 
I'm fascinated by nature versus nurture, and essentially because I have three inherited stepchildren to whom I'm that they certainly lost their mum, so I'm very much their mum, and I have two birth children, and I'm fascinated. I have a live experiment of nature and, and nurture, and some things are just 100% nature. They're thin ankles, they're amazing GQs that got them all to sort of Oxbridge, and then <laughs> by contrast, mine that that I don't have thin ankles and I <laughs> didn't, didn't go to Oxford. It's quite interesting, actually. Is you know, is an entrepreneurial spirit something that is because you surround yourself with it, or because actually you're born that way? Mm. My take on that actually is that I think a lot of it is, is nurture. I mean, I think, I don't know if you've ever listened to David Beckham's Desert Island Discs. I know it's worth it. And he talks about how his father was on the touchline for every match and how he was driving him on and often only ever talked about the sort of things that he got wrong, you know, really pushing, pushing, pushing. And, and I think a positive way, but but it's that that focuses kids mm. and, and, and pushes them. And, and for me, I was surrounded by people with businesses. Everyone in my family had their own business. And so it wasn't unnatural to me. So therefore, it didn't feel scary to start. And I think that's huge, actually, that mm-hmm. small thing. Yes. And of course, I had a bit of a support structure because actually people sort of spoke that language. It felt sort of exciting and, and not too scary. So I think having that surrounding me was it was a huge plus. Yes, you were eating it for breakfast almost without you quite realising. And so you left school at 18. You didn't go to university either. Um, but instead, you went off to Florence to learn more about the handbag industry. Because as we know that you had this moment that kicked off something within you. Tell me about that experience. And did you sort of know that this was going to be your life. Were you quite settled with that? I actually knew, and I think it's so lucky to know what you want to do. I knew from a young age that I wanted to start a business. I kind of knew I wanted to start a brand, actually. And I was given a handbag, one of my mother's sort of secondhand handbags um, when I was about 15, 16. And I remember how it made me feel. It was it was really interesting. I loved the craftsmanship. I loved the way uh, it was made. I love every aspect of it. But I also mostly loved that actually I felt sort of that sort of slightly better version of myself. And I think that's a lovely thing about fashion. It does sort of make you raise your game and, and smile with your eyes in, in a funny way. So I actually at about um, 16 or 17, actually I remember going to a talk of an old girl who worked in fashion And I remember going back to my room at school and actually drawing my first shop with my name on it and knowing that's what I wanted to do. So it was quite a clear vision. And Mm. that I think is a huge help because actually then you can go after that. So Florence was where I wanted to go because I knew it was the home of leather. And I wanted just to get under the skin of it and understand it and and know everything. I was just hungry to learn every bit of terminology for the leather industry and every aspect of that world. Um, And that's really where it started. And so then that took you to actually creating your first, well, your business. How did that actually start? What were those early, early days like? Because I know that you literally went straight in, didn't you? Yeah. So I was in Florence and I saw a bag that all the kind of Florentine girls were wearing. And I remember thinking it was great and I hadn't seen it in the UK. And I found a factory to make a sort of a version of that that I designed and had some samples made and brought them back to the UK when I came back a few months later and sold them to an offer in the back of, it was the monthly offer in the back of Harper's and Queen magazine, as it was at the time. And I knew that I had a friend who had a stepmother who uh, worked in the office department, so I took it to see her. And that really got the first order, and we sold 500, and it made a nice profit. And then I started designing more things and selling to shops. Uh, and that really is how how I got into making and designing and selling handbags. It was hard because a lot of my friends, most of my friends were at university at the time, and I was sitting at my kind of kitchen table it felt quite lonely actually at times and it felt hard because whilst it was suddenly very busy and then nothing and then very busy and then nothing and then there's nothing stages yes um you feel you know you feel a bit lonely and it's the first rush of excitement is amazing but the, you know some hard yards for sure and I think it's very important to get through those hard yards if you do you win and if you don't so many businesses are lost at that stage um, because it's really fun sort of doing your first sort of shiny business card and opening your first 
website, but actually it's then about driving that business and, you know, all the obstacles that the bottles that are lobbed at you daily, as we know. And so that's really how I started. But I'm glad I did push on through the, the pain points and and uh, and keep going. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Once someone told me when I was starting, not on the high street, how much pain can you take, Holly? And I sort of laughed because I was like, well, you know, you're a man, childbirth, et cetera, et cetera, quite a lot. I actually realised what he meant because there is almost nothing like it. You know, there isn't this sort of... And I know you're nodding your head, this this moment where I think we're delusional. We keep going for that perfect moment where everything's sorted. I mean, it's just amazing. That's what it was all about. I'm now here. Everything's fine. Actually, it, business is just a queue of issues and problems. And you've got to be that athlete almost that is able to just deal with issues coming at you. And I think that is almost when you start, if you knew that, you know, naivety is a beautiful thing because if you actually knew that, would you necessarily go down this journey? I've heard you say, I've learned that to be scared is the same as being excited and you have to challenge yourself to do the very best creative work. The moment you feel comfortable, it kind of goes wrong. Do you believe that? Because I mean, I'm nodding my head because I 100% know what you're saying here. Does that keep you driving forward? I think success is a patchwork of of failure. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, fun enough. I mean, I sort of have many failures all the time, every day. It's sort of, it's almost. I mean, I, I always liken it to sailing, which is a bad analogy because I don't sail. But when you're going from A to B as a sailor, you don't go in a straight line. You go left, you tack left, you tack right, you tack left. So you're going wrong the whole time, but you're making progress. And that's how it feels, I think. Um, and I don't want to sort of make it sound awful because it's really fun. It's like a really great game of chess every day or like a lucky dip. Yes. Oh, absolutely. You wouldn't do anything else, no, right? You never yes. know what's going to end up in your inbox. And sometimes it's super exciting. So it's, you know, I'm talking about the bad bits here, but I think, you know, you're running in a certain direction you hit a brick wall and you have to find a way around it through it or over it and it's often through it and it hurts you know that sometimes it's hard and I think there are mm. just as you think I've got everything is I always think you're conducting an orchestra when you run a business you know you are the conductor you shouldn't be one of the instruments you're the conductor but you know are the violins in tune and actually has the lead violinist just decided to leave and are you still trying to recruit that person and you know is there an issue with your supply chain there and you, you just you've got this sort of ch childlike orchestra that you're just trying to you know to tune up and make it work in a good way and and sometimes you know the cellos are just not on form. <laughs> so you're doing it despite that. You know, that's how it feels a bit. Well, you've got to build something else up so, so no one can hear the cellos, right? Do you still feel like that? Because I, I ask as a female entrepreneur, 16 years into my journey, does it get easier or is it almost the same? A little bit like being a parent, I suppose. You know, you don't stop you know, having issues with children, whether it's walking and falling over their toys or getting on the tube for the first time. It's the same, but just different. I think it gets easier in the sense that you you get a, a, a more robust team. You know, when you start, I think that's probably mm -hmm. in some ways the hardest it's the hardest, it's the most exciting time, but it's also the hardest time because you're grappling with everything and you don't know yourself how to do it. And you also don't have the assistance. You don't have, you can't call someone about your IT. You can't, mm -hmm. you're not known to your supply chain. So you're, you're you're sort of fighting every fire because, you know, you're trying to almost sell to your suppliers to go, please support me. And, and yes. you're trying to sell to your customers when they can, you know, just as easily put their money with someone who's tried and, and tested. And you're obviously sort of begging to be paid. And there's all those sorts of things. So I think it does get a bit easier in all, in all honesty. I now feel that if I walk away, I've got a great COO. I've got amazing, you know, you've got, you've got the infrastructure and there are people, you know, mm. hopefully, and certainly in my case, I've worked with for many years and, and we know each other very well and I, I trust them. But it is forever, it's, you know, you're just dreading that, you know, by the way, I'm suddenly going on maternity leave or I've got an issue or, you know, I want more money mm -hmm. or, you know, there's all these little problems and they are little sort of stabs in the stomach every day, honestly. 
know, and you're just trying to sort of yeah. manage that to keep the sort of the, the lids on the cost buckets and try and drive everyone forward on the same strategy. So, but listen, I, I mean, I'm talking negatively. I bloody love it. <laughs> but you know what? This is the thing. We wouldn't have it any other way. But I think it's really important that, you know, this podcast is about sharing the real stuff, which is that these stories of the early days and sheer determination and that hard graft is actually what gets you to that next stage and then hopefully the next stage and it just keeps going. Your brand is just something that is quite phenomenal. Princess Diana became a devoted fan of your work amongst many other people and countless big fashion moments ever since. I want to talk about your I'm not a plastic bag turning into becoming your now unbelievable I am a plastic bag. This is my first entry point with you when the it bag, you know, the 2007, it was all about the it bags. And you created a tote, which was I am not a plastic bag. It was five pounds. And it was a global sensation. It was a collaboration with the social change movement shift and it ignited the debate of plastic bags around the world. The queues in the cities around the world, I, am I right in saying that Sainsbury sold something like 80,000 bags on launch day. It had 80,000 people queue in one day. That was what was kind of scary about it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, that's even more. But now you must be so proud because you're, in a way, you've gone full circle and now you've done it again with I am a plastic bag. Can you tell me about this and what the response has been? I mean, it's been an amazing project. I mean, it's been amazing because actually I've just, I've learned so much and um, I mean, it's been hard as well at times because it's, you know, it's a huge amount of R&D and, and um, it gets quite political when you when you sort of dig into the sphere, as you can imagine. But I mean, the, the initial project, I'm not a plastic bag, had a very simple aim, which was to try and make people think twice about taking single-use plastics. It was about awareness. Mm -hmm. I mean, awareness it got. It was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, it really was. And, and you know, 80,000 people in, in the UK and then on and on around the world. I was locked up in a basement in Tokyo because they were scared for my safety, which seemed ridiculous. But it was, you know, it was of that sort of level of, of madness. And I think 30 people went to hospital in Taiwan because there was a stampede. Um, it closed an entire shopping mall. So not proud of that. And we stopped it immediately after that. But it was it was an amazing vehicle for awareness and, and for debate around this, the subject. We did it. It made a difference. It really did make a difference. I mean, I think the numbers of... Mm. Single-use plastic bags, according to the British Retail Consortium, went from nine point something billion to six point something billion in a year. Not, of course, just us, because lots of people then, you know, really got involved as well. But it really did spark a debate. So I felt super proud of that project. Really complicated to do, not not easy at all. Fraught with difficulty, and we learned along the way as well. But it was great. Um, so we sort of went back to normal life and carried on doing what we do for for our day jobs. But then in 2020, all those years later, that, that fabulous 2020 that we've all just experienced, <laughs> I felt that. Well, there was one something I'd heard that was rattling around my brain, which was when you throw something away, there is no away. Oh, wow. It really is that scary thought that, you know, everyone, frankly, should go and see a landfill site. Every single child in the country should actually visit a landfill site to realise what we all do. I always remember thinking if you were to throw something away that couldn't be recycled and you had to bury it in your own garden, you would soon become overwhelmed with plastic rubbish in your garden and it would be horrible and you would just stop taking it. But because we're so disconnected from a landfill site, we're not realising that those huge mm -hmm. banks of, of plastic and stuff that's, that's sitting you know, being buried in, in the land is hard. We should stop it immediately. So I wanted to revisit the project, but with a different aim, really. So it wasn't just about awareness anymore, clearly. It was about how can we keep in circulation the 8 billion tonnes of plastic that are currently on the planet? How can we actually not do what we're doing now, which is take something, buy something, 
use it for too short a period and then put it into landfill, then buy something else and use it for too short a period and put it into landfill. How can we actually take something that was about to go into landfill, stop it going to landfill, use it again, make it into something beautiful and keep it in circulation, hopefully being used again or sold on and reused, but just avoid the landfill. So we, we don't just amass all this stuff that we don't do with. So we spent two years developing this um, fabric, which was complicated to do because we wanted to make something really beautiful and it was like a, a lovely cotton mm. drill but made out of plastic we recovered and that we broke down into little pellets and then we melted and we, we spun and we weave into fabric uh, and it behaved in fact so much like a cotton drill that we wanted to coat one side of it because it got dirty so we wanted to coat it with a with a sort of a, a, a coating but we managed to find the plastic they put between glass windscreens, which stops the glass shattering in cars, um, which is called PVB. And we managed to reclaim that, which would have gone to landfill and to use that on the coating as the coating on one side of the bag. So it was an amazing project, really complicated to do. Wow. Yeah. And we called it I Am a Plastic Bag because, of course, it's made of plastic. But it's a beautiful thing. So it's how can you take waste and make it in something beautiful. Mm. And so we launched that, was it February now? February 2020. And to launch it, we felt to connect people to this thing in my head about all the rubbish in my garden that, that I would have to plant in my garden. We actually closed all of our stores in London and we emptied them and we filled them with 90,000 used plastic bottles. I love this. Which is probably why I got COVID, I think, because we had to find a lot of plastic bottles. We were literally going up and down the Eurostar, putting them all into a bag and taking them. <laughs> the whole company was was challenged and charged with trying to find these bottles. And we managed to get 90,000, which was eight minutes of landfill. Oh, my goodness. Just to give people a sense of scale. And it was really interesting. So we filled all of our London stores overnight with these these bottles, which, you know, came up like water, like sort of tied line, almost up to the, to the ceiling. Mm. And people were climbing over them to try and sort of, you know, get out the door and, and, and close the door and leave all the bottles in. I think it was part protest, if you like, and part almost art installation. But mm. it served, I think, to connect people to how disgusting it is. Uh, and people were stopping and looking and taking photographs and were kind of shocked by it. So I think it was a lovely project to really connect people to this problem, saying, now we need to talk about circularity materials. We can't carry on like this. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's been really fascinating, honestly. And um, and as, as you can tell, a, a real passion project and, and, and hilarious, yeah. given that my dad was, I think, one of the first people or was the first person to invent <laughs> the plastic flower pot. So it goes full circle. <laughs> Do you think this is the era of the circular economy? Do you think that the fashion brands need to evolve and adapt? Do you think that they're going to? We have to. I mean, we have 10 years. Hmm. We have 10 years. And I had a very frightening um, meeting with someone who's incredibly, you know, learned on this subject. And he said to me, and it was quite terrible, he said, you know, it's too late, don't you? He said, it's too late for your, your children. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we will not get to net zero. We will not keep the planet at the temperature we need to keep it at just by our actions on, on, on carbon. We also need to offset. We're already into the territory of it being almost too late. And, you know, whether that's right or not, I don't know. But this is someone who's incredibly learned and written lots of academic papers on the subject. It's really frightening. You know, and I mean, COVID is a walk in the park. This is something that, you know, if we suddenly have a planet that's too hot and you know how it is in the summer when you're in the Middle East, I mean, it's uncomfortable. So everyone migrates further north where it's cooler. And of course, then you get overcrowding, you get flooding. It's really frightening. So I think we have to assume this is a very, very serious problem and to act on it. We've got apparently 10 years. If we can, you know, do the combination of offsetting and reducing our carbon, we might just have a chance of doing it. So it's, it's for now. It's not, you know, it's not for fun. Our mission at Holly & Co is to support creative small businesses through sharing useful, tangible, soulful content all year round. 
Whether you have your own business already or you're thinking of taking that leap of faith and pursuing your lifelong business dream, I'm here to support you. I know what you're thinking. How can I keep up to date with all this inspiration, Holly? Well, it's simple. Just head over to Instagram and follow at Holly Tucker and at holly.co so you don't miss a thing. By following these accounts, you'll be the first in line to receive all of my exciting podcast updates, hear my personal thoughts as I share the lessons I've learned the hard way, and absorb this colourful, amazing, creative community that I shine a light on every single day. And let's not forget, you'll be notified each time I'm hosting an IGTV live, often with special guests, industry experts or hosting a Q&A with the small business community, answering those business questions you just can't Google. So what are you waiting for? Get following. I can't wait for you to join me. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. When I do these podcasts, Anya, I literally just want to just transport you, transport unbelievable founders and put them in positions of power because it's when I feel like you're an entrepreneur and you're a founder, you are so used to getting things and shit done that actually you don't have time to waste, do you? Your company could, you know, don't have any time to waste. You're paying staff, et cetera, et cetera. It's now. And that's where I get this sense of frustration with what we're doing here. You know, it is now. You, what you just said, everyone listening to what you just said, they want to take action. And I feel people People feel disenfranchised at the moment. At the same time, I don't think this is just down to governments. I've, clearly, there's a huge role that governments can play. I think it's down to individuals as well. And and I think it's incumbent on all of us to work out what we can do. And there's loads we can do. We need to, in my opinion, just apply two words, common sense. Mm. Let's just think about our behaviour. You know, anything with the word disposable in it needs to mm-hmm. be lost from our vocabulary. We need to buy our food locally. We need to travel less, probably. And we need to buy responsibly. That doesn't mean not buy things because we need to keep people employed because the most dangerous thing of all is for people to lose jobs because then the planet will slip down everyone's agenda, in my in my opinion. Yes. Um, but it's rather than buy 10 T-shirts a year, buy four, but actually pay mm-hmm. twice as much for them, buy good ones that last, repair things, you know, waste not, want not, you know, make do and mend, buy less, buy better. It's that sort of grandparental advice that, that I think we need to go back to. Uh, and my mother still will take a, a plastic, those little bags that you might divide food up and put them in the freezer and she will use them for 10 years because she'll use it and she'll wash it up and I'll see them sitting on top of her in her airing cupboard drying mm. out to be used again. Yeah, it's all common sense. We've just, and it's not that we knew, where well, we have, it's just not that we knew necessarily, but we've all just got used to this this very frivolous life that is not sustainable for our planet, frankly. So it, I think if we can just all do as much as we can quickly, and obviously, you know, governments can make, they can do great things that change behaviour from taxes to rules to, you know, they can have a huge, huge part to play. But actually, it's all of us as individuals, we can all do it. And we have to. Couldn't agree more with you. One of the things you've done so cleverly is use your fashion and as a platform for doing good, as you've I've mentioned. And I know you have worked on lots of wonderful collaborations, but your work with the NHS during lockdown was just remarkable. And again, this is where I just love it. It was speed, Anya. I mean, the, what you did was so fast and it, you produced very, very clever piece of kit to help the NHS staff working in intensive care units. And it was called the Holdster. Tell me more about it. 
Well, it was a call actually from this amazing man called Hugh Montgomery, who, who runs lots of the ICU unit, units in, in London. And it, it was very much his idea. Um, but he he said that, you know, during this, this wave, this tidal wave that was hitting uh, all his teams, they too were stressed about their children who were homeschooling. And they, they too were stressed about their parents worrying about them. And they, of course, were also worried about their parents. And their sort of day-to-day was so, they were just so under it that they would normally leave their phones in their lockers and then have a chance to go and check on their phone and check everything's going on and reassure their kids and their parents. But of course, they were unable. So it meant it just added a huge amount of emotional stress. And he really wanted this thing called a holster, which is like a gun holster. And it sits almost, if you like, under your arms because infection is transmitted through your front mostly. That's where you tend to have the infection. So they wanted it put away. It had to be in a particular material that could be washed a very high temperature to kill infection for infection control. And it could take their phone so they could just quickly check on their kids and say goodnight and send them a little mm-hmm. sort of video kiss or, you know, see if there's a problem the children were fighting, they could sort of wade in. It meant that they had what they needed. That might be their phone, their glasses, their passes, their coffee coins, whatever it was, their lucky charm. And I think it gave them comfort. So I just got a call from Hugh saying, could we help make these? And the great thing about difficult times is that people come together very quickly. The red tape gets cut. People just you know, get shit done to your, your point earlier. And I think it was really lovely, you know, infection control and, and ICU. And so it was a lovely project. And we, we had another call actually from the Royal Marsden, which is that incredible, incredible hospital, which is, I think, the leading hospital in the world in terms of research for cancer care. And they were struggling because they had become a cancer hub and um, where they were taking all the cancer patients from other hospitals because they had, you know, they had obviously weakened immune systems. And they were running out of, of hospital gowns. It was scary for everyone, but they were particularly, their patients were particularly vulnerable. And they just said, you know, could we help and a sort of fashion you know, industry supply chain way of, you know, trying to find a way to get some gowns made. Um, and we managed, but it's actually very hard, hard to find the fabric because we didn't want to do disposable ones because again, more disposable kit that was all burnt. It has to be burnt because it's contaminated. It's just the worst thing for the environment. But so we wanted to find a material that could be boiled like old fashioned nurses uniforms, you know, and actually sterilize. And right. then you have your constant supply and it's on site. You just need washing machines to a certain temperature. So we managed to find this fabric and to get them made in London. Actually, it's an incredible group of people. Um, and uh, I think we managed to get six and a half thousand made. So it kept the Marsden and in fact, St. George's as well in enough gowns. And, and you know, those gowns are still going now. So that it was a, it was a really, frankly, it was a privilege because it was a time when we were all sitting at home. Not wondering knowing what how to we do. Could contribute. Yeah. So it was actually, it was really lovely to do. So my whole teams were involved in that project. It was really lovely. Gosh, I mean, I just can't even get over what some of the things that you do. I wanted to talk to you about your creativity and craftsmanship. So in the village, you have this amazing workshop it's always what I love about this retail theatre but it's not it's real and uh, you know I've seen it on your emails I've seen it on your website but to actually go and peer in and actually see what was happening um, was incredible you say that your handbags should be as precious as a piece of jewellery but as wearable as a piece of art and each piece is crafted meticulously using only the best materials and the work that goes into the bags are astounding the crisp packet for instance is the most beautiful piece of modern art. I went in there the other day and I, I mean, I didn't, but because Frank would have killed me, but I just wanted to buy three or four and have them box framed and put them in my kitchen. Do you know what I mean? And maybe have it slideable so that when I go out, I can take one out and wear it. And actually for my wedding, my team bought me the prawn cracker crisp packet for my wedding day. So that was just a wonderful thing. Where do you get this inspiration from? Like, what was that moment for you? And like, the whole team said it to me. How did she look at the crisp packet or the Wrigley's chewing gum and say, right, I'm going to make the most 
beautiful evening handbag. <laughs> Ordinary, making it extraordinary. Like, where does that come from, Anya? <laughs> sound like a mad woman, don't I? Genius. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I've always loved the idea of taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary. It's something we talk about quite a lot. So there's everyday things. It's kind of lovely if you then make them special because things you're very used to, to make them in a way that actually is really precious is just has always been quite appealing to me. And the way I always loved miniature things as well, you know, the certain things that are kind of appealing. I think that um, no one needs another handbag, right? We really don't. The world doesn't need another handbag. It's about making things. I, I mean, I'm fascinated by craft. It's the thing that is just, it's kind of what gets me out of bed in the morning, really. And I, the, the crisp packet, for example, is when you hold a crisp packet, it's actually a beautiful thing with those folds and creases. And it's rather lovely. And actually, we we actually had it um, photographed 360. So millions of pictures. We got every single aspect of it. And then we actually 3D modeled it and printed it. And actually, it's a beautiful thing to hold in your hand. And we made it out of this lovely sort of liquid, highly polished metal. I mean, it has 10 different molds. So to your point about art, it is actually a piece of art. I mean, it's a sculpture. It has 10 molds because it opens like a clam, which again is, is quite complicated in the way that it actually won't go into the detail, but you know, the, the bottom is not equal. So it actually is open like a clam, but not um, touch each other at the bottom. So it is a piece of engineering as well as a piece of, a piece of art in a way. But I think those things are lovely. And we work with this amazing factory in Florence who are absolutely the deal. You know, they've been, it's, it's a third generation. It's not even a factory. It's a craft shop, really. And, you know, when you see how they, they make the moulds and then they pour in the metal and then it comes out and it cools down and then they polish it and then they, you know, the tools go in and they connect it and then they line it. I mean, it's, it is absolutely, it's a joy. It's a complete joy. And it's, it's been actually subject to quite a lot of controversy that bag. Because I don't know if you saw, there was a, there was, I think it was um, Solange Knowles who, who I think threw it at Jay-Z in an elevator after the Met Ball and it all went absolutely mad. And I didn't know that that was the item that which was Which is thrown. a pretty sharp bag. It has these sharp corners. Yes, and so, Anyway, absolutely. it was quite funny because the internet blew up and we had every single newspaper in the world from the sort of Canadian Herald to the, you know, wherever, wherever calling us going is it your bag and what's going on and have you any comment and every PR company's going don't say anything at all it's you know it's such a sad situation and I was like oh I know but I kind of want people to kind of know it's our bag and in the end we just posted <laughs> we just posted a picture of the beautiful Chris Packet bag lying on a lovely marble table and we just went the Chris Packet worth fighting for <laughs> and again we had every newspaper going and it's just in really bad taste but and I think there were even like marketing newspapers debating whether it was bad taste or and I think they came down on the, the side of actually it was quite a sort of fun little sort of marketing oh it's brilliant absolutely brilliant Absolutely brilliant. Your designs are so clever. I mean, firstly, the idea of now having them in the kitchen as pieces of art, it's resonating more and more. So thank you for that. It's those little touches. It's the functionality in all of your bags. And somehow you have this unique ability to get under the skin. I remember interviewing you before and you said, you know, you create things that you love. And I've used that as an example to every small business because the amount of businesses that I see creating what they love to begin with and finding themselves five, ten years down the line, and you're nodding your head, you get this, right? Doing something that they're like, how am I here? How am I here? I don't even like what I create anymore, but it's paying the bills. It's actually what everyone else wants. You've learned this sort of psychology behind the bag and sort of balancing form and function and creativity. Is that what you've done? Have you got into the psyche of the woman? Is that your, because you are the customer? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm getting older, so you have to be kind of careful not to just only be the customer. I've always felt that I do my best work from sort of passion rather than sort of you know, profit. I can't start designing something thinking I'm going to make money from this. I start thinking, what do I need? What do I love? Mm -hmm. So it sort of does come from me probably because I think I'm, I'm not my, my, I'm not a sort of, 
amused. I'm, I'm almost my own harshest critic is probably the way I look at it. You know, I'm, I'm tough on myself and does this work? I'm not. I'm a great believer in, in fashion with purpose. That's that's actually what really, I think if I if I sort of started out as, you know, loving making the, the everyday extraordinary and, and all the different projects, but actually now I, I just feel unless it has a purpose and that purpose can be about making someone feel great. That's enough purpose. But mm-hmm. mostly it's about organisation. It's about repurposing materials. It's about does it have a contribution to charity? Does it, what is its purpose? Uh, and I think that's important. Important. I think it's interesting also, though, that sometimes you start off with something that's that you love, and actually, as the creator, you can get quite tired of it, or you can get a little bit immune to its sort of, you know, the, the good aspects of it. And I, I've often found that actually, I can sort of be a bit sort of harsh on something that's still one of our best sellers. Going, oh, I'm bored of that now. And actually, people, other people aren't. And so, you know, sometimes I think you have to also try and get a bit of space to look, you know, with a bit of perspective. So I design things I love. I think I, I wouldn't do it otherwise. Um, Sometimes, of course, you have to amend things to certain markets that might be, you know, in Japan, they might want something slightly smaller or, you know, you might need something zipped in New York or whatever it might be. But I, I start with me just because it's the safest place to start, really. Uh, and But do have to take into account that sometimes I can want to move on to the next thing, but actually you also have to stay with things that, that have proven to be winners. You must be super organised because your label collection, which I was in there the other day I visited... And I just obviously have to contain myself because I actually want to have absolutely everything. Because for everyone listening here, you know, when you go on holiday and I went on holiday with a couple of girlfriends and we laughed. We took this picture and we had between us, between three women, 50 small little bags that we didn't know that we'd all packed little bags of little things, you know, to put your jewellery in, to put the suntan lotion in, so that when you pack your bag, everything is compartmentalised. And we all happened to be in, you know, our room, hungover, whatever. And I said to my friend, what are these little bags? And she's like, I... So we got them all together. There were 50. <laughs> the fact you knew that and you have created, I, I just can't go on. If I start to, I start to sort of convulse. Is The, the label collection is about organisation, but it is tapping into something that is part of the psyche of a woman across the globe, it must be. It must be fascinating. But I think it comes out of need. Well, I mean, all those things come out of need. I mean, they're systems. I mean, I, I think that the label collection is my way of feeling in control when I feel out of control, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I've got yes. five kids. I'm running around. I was, you know, was traveling a huge amount. And I'd get to the airport. And in those days when you took currency out, which you sort of don't need to so much anymore, you know, actually it was annoying putting my sterling next to my yen, next to my dollars, because they'd get in a muddle. So actually it was better to have individual envelopes, yes. but paper envelopes would tear. And then actually could I, you know, was it rather, I, I like doing that thing where you feel organized and you've got something delicious that's a lovely leather little pouch that has yen on it and you know I get up my yen purse and I've got the coins if I want sort of the coins for the trolley in the airport I've got the coins mm. when I get there you know it's, it's all those little things that just I love I'm, I'm a nerd like that I like being all efficient and tidy but it also does give me a sort of sense of control and it's also just practical so you know if I grab my bag that's labelled cables and chargers I know when I get to my hotel room in, in New York that I've got my mm. my laptop charger and my the right plugs and I'm just not going to forget them so it acts as a prompt as well so I do think there's a real luxury in that sort of organisation yes that's uh, so why we love our phones they work right I mean they that's the ultimate luxury they really work and so um, for me the organization that comes from the labeled system is is really appealing I'm just gonna have to stop it there because I actually cannot I could talk about it for about an hour I'd love to talk to you though about brand because it's one of my favorite subjects in the world and I have to say who better than the queen of brand to talk to you about this I was speaking to Alex Monroe the jeweler and he was speaking about how his brand has developed as he realized who he was, and was then able to inject his personality into it. 
Your brand has always been remarkable. It's fantastically British, stylish, witty, playful, and very cool. Our brands are the beating hearts of our company. Tell me about developing your brand personality over time. I think that you have to do this quite naturally. I mean, without a doubt, you know, in the 30 years that I've probably had a company, maybe more, you know, there's ebbs and flows, of course. And, you know, you change and respond to what's going on in the world and to what's going on with you and what's going on in your industry. And so a lot of people will sit down and have, you know, taglines and mantras and and mission statements. and, And I actually think that Funny enough, the, the word brand is so overused and actually we should replace the word brand with the word behavior because actually I think your your brand is, is really about how you behave much more than, than I mean, obviously mission statements can help people, you know, stay on track and can communicate to everyone what it is when you've got a much bigger organization. But I do think we mustn't forget behavior. I think it's very, very important because behavior conveys your values more than anything, I think. And I think in this very first person world of, you know, internet and the communication that we can do, even big companies can actually communicate their behavior and their values very, very clearly now. So actually, I think we mustn't forget that. Totally. And what advice would you give about creating a compelling brand? Because I would just like to use this moment to say, and you might blush, but for me, if I look at every brand out there, and I've been asked, you know, who are your favourite brands, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, I put you and your brand at the top. And the team, we talk about it all the time. What you do, every email I get, everything that you do, I am surprised by. You delight me. I'm not expecting it. Oh, you made my day. Don't stop, don't stop. Oh, no, but you know, <laughs> you should just be a handbag creator, right? This is something in my fashion world. It's so much more, though. And this is where, for me, you're top of your class, actually one of the brands that everyone should look to from the retail side of the to the theatre, to your missions, to doing good. It's showing how a brand that could just be labelled a handbag company or or fashion designer is just so much more it oozes it and I just had to say that to you because I have tall orders for brands you know nothing really inspires me and you're one of the only companies that do it but can I say thank you that's a really I mean, because it's, 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 it's funny enough I mean seriously when you're in a brand as you know and there'll be lots of people who have their own brands it's very hard to ever see the positive actually you, you, you're trained of course to only see the the bad bits and and in so much I feel we need to work on I think it is interesting though that you have to be authentic and I've had times when I've been more authentic and less authentic because of course in a brand of, of many years as, as, as we've had on my brand you know there's times when you you know there was a time in fashion when it was cool to you know to be much more sort of remote and distant and actually one of the things as you get older is you realize just be you and I think the more authentic you are about your product and about your brand communication the more it resonates so therefore, what you're saying is incredibly lovely for me to hear, because actually we really have just thrown off the shackles over the last sort of couple of years and just actually just done what we loved. I've seen. And it might not be about fashion, actually. It's about what we care about. And actually, it's really lovely how people do respond to that. So thank you for that kind feedback. And I hope that people listening in will realise that on the inside, it's not easy. But actually just doing what you believe in and meaning it, I think, is actually the bit that is when it works the best, probably. Your book, If in Doubt, Wash Your Hair, which we touched on earlier, was released in May and it has become a Sunday Times bestseller. So congratulations. I think you I think actually beat were... me in the Sunday Times bestseller. <laughs> I was number nine because I was always bottom of the class and I think you were about four, weren't you? I can't remember the number now, but not, no, not that don't... I'm competitive much. <laughs> it was such a, I mean, it was just one of those moments. Like me and the team were like, 
Anya is in the same list as me. I can't even cope with it. And I think that was more for me the honour than actually so smashed, where I was in the charts. You smashed the charts. You smashed the charts. That's amazing. It, well, it's written with such honesty and wisdom and it covers juggling motherhood, entrepreneurship and the general busyness of life. And if you haven't read it and you're listening, you must, must buy it. Am I right in saying that it was a moment for you to sort of put down your story? As you said, because that you haven't been necessarily front and centre, even though the name of the company is you. You know, I've only started really to get to know you through your brand over the few last years. Was this an important thing for you to do? Well, I think, I mean, I'm quite a private person. So, you know, this is a this is a pretty private book, actually. So it feels quite exposing in a way. I think the lovely thing is you get to, I mean, I'm now 53, you get to about 50, when I got to about 50, and you realise that, a, you know more than you think. And I think that comes probably from experience and, you know, the sort of the winding journey. But I think also you, you realize that you, you should share what you've learned, I think, with, mm -hmm. with others. I, I think, I mean, two things. I've, I've obviously done lots of talks over the years to people starting businesses and to you know, talking about the fashion industry and so on. And it was always, it was always the questions at the end of the talks where people would say, you know, can you, what's your best tip? What's the best way of managing the juggle of, of running a business or being a woman in business or being an entrepreneur or being a mum and working and so on? And I would always rather jokingly say, my best bit of advice actually is, if in doubt, wash your hair. And it was a jokey bit of advice, but it speaks to that that thing that I think the reason people laugh is that you know how much better you feel if you've made that mm. effort, if you've actually prioritised yourself a little bit and how much better you perform if you do. So I think that's an important point, but it also has the word doubt in it. And I think doubt's a very interesting subject. And I think one that no one is particularly honest about, because everyone suffers doubt, everyone, from the prime minister to the president, everyone suffers doubt. And yet I'm not sure people admit to it. In addition to that, I think we should embrace doubt as actually something that makes us good. Doubt's a really great tool because it makes you question yourself. It makes you better. It makes you really examine it and, and, mm -hmm. and, and finesse things. And we need to stop being scared of doubt, but to embrace it. So I wanted to write really honestly and really openly as if, you know, girlfriend to girlfriend or, or mother to daughter, I'm saying women because I think it's probably a particularly feminine, but, but actually I, I hope it, it was, it, it's appealing to any parent or any, uh, any entrepreneur or business person. But just to say the things that I've struggled with in terms of doubt, uh, in, in all those roles I have, you know, doubt snakes through being a mum, being a stepmom, being a woman in business, being an entrepreneur, being a creator, all those things, they all, of course, come with doubt because you're always pushing yourself and how I've sort of managed that or not managed that because you don't always manage it and, and how it's either okay or not okay. And just, just taking all that bit of, all those bits of advice I've gathered over the years that have helped me and, and stolen really and, and just put them down on paper so that hopefully they might help someone else. So that's really was the point of it. Oh. But quite exposing because I am quite a private person. So it did feel a bit frightening to do. Well, I've just loved reading it and I've bought it for absolutely everyone that I know. Am I also right in saying that it was also partly inspired after the events of 2019, which marked the end of a difficult time from a business perspective? Because as you mentioned before, in 2012, am I right in saying you sold the majority stake of your company and you left the role of CEO and to focus on being the creative officer. And I read that you did this because you felt that the company needed someone better than you, someone with more formal training to lead the business. I've had personal experience of that sort of world. Tell me about coming back because, you know, for me, this has just been the best years 
you being back at the helm, right? From a from a customer perspective. Well, thank you. Well, so I sold a bit of the business and brought in uh, investment and changed my role. I think the changing the role bit was the important bit. I, I moved from being CEO and creative, so I did those two roles, to being creative because I felt that I, I had to split them up because I was, you know, it was just it was just a lot. Yes. Um, and I was I was actually torn as to whether I wanted to bring in a CEO or to bring in a creative, and I felt it was actually harder to hire the creative and that's easier to, to hire the CEO. I found myself a few years later realizing that actually I really missed running the business. I think if you started a business, it's quite weird not running your own business and, and being a sort of incumbent in it mm. uh, and not holding the reins. I love the people. I love building the teams. I found it sort of strange not to do that. It was hard. It was hard, actually. So um, in the end, long story short, we, we bought the business back with a wonderful partner. And holding the reins again feels so right. I think if you're an entrepreneur, it's, it's very strange not to be calling the shots and, and making the decisions. And I love having it back. I love the drama. I love the people part. I love the stress. I love the sleepless nights. I mean, it's not it's not always fun, but actually mostly that's it's what I was sort of born to do. So it felt strange not doing that. I, I also think that I probably brought in the CEO partly because the role was, was broad that I was doing. But also there wasn't a little inner voice that was like, I'm a woman, I need a professional, I need someone who's probably done this before. I think that we all need to remember as entrepreneurs that actually to kind of get through the tiny eye of the needle, and it's a hard, painful process starting a business, you know, it does sort of, you know, as I say, sorts the men from the boys, which is a ridiculous analogy, but you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> if you can do that, you actually know much more than you think. You've actually done the hard yards. You've done the equivalent mm. of the, the Harvard Business School. You've done the equivalent of, you know, all the training. I mean, it, it, you need to be tenacious and, and you need to have charisma. You need to have all those things that that get you through those hard yards. And actually, therefore, you are qualified. And just because you're not qualified in, in real terms uh, doesn't mean that you're not qualified in practical terms. So I think we all need to. That was a real lesson for me. I, I knew more than I realized. And actually, I, I feel more confident now that I don't need to do that. And in fact, probably the alternative route, uh, and lots of founders, by the way, have done that. Um, I think the alternative route is to hire great people underneath you and keep pulling them up the ranks. And that is the alternative, which probably would have been better for me. And so I learned that on that journey. So now you're back with that confidence, and maybe you had to go through that journey to be able to say what you've just said. I'm assuming that you're going to take the reins and do everything that your mind and your dreams are shooting for. You're in the fashion world. You can't tell me about things coming up necessarily. But tell me about the brand and what you want to achieve over the next 10 years? The next 10 years for me are about actually we've sort of got the business back into sort of shape that I, I really wanted to. We've also been looking very much at actually sort of working on digital because I feel that's the future with obviously a much more experiential and fun bricks and mortar but you know where we had 60 stores and we were going to 80 and 120 that's no longer the route I believe and I really want to further my passion for sort of fashion with purpose and how we mm-hmm. actually sort of you know the, the sort of it's a bit of a sort of trying to square the circle of selling things but actually doing the right thing for the environment is is hard so yes. um, we, we've discussed that already but I, I really want to sort of dig deeper into that so there's a number of projects that are quite interesting that are coming up um, but I've got lots and lots of plans that I hope will continue to employ people grow a healthy business but also be respectful to what we need to do for these important next 10 years I can't wait I'm going to be there the biggest cheerleader on your side I know that you are such a busy woman but I do end this interview with two questions to all of my wonderful guests what we do is like being on an epic roller coaster and your car on that roller coaster would be the most beautifully crafted uh, coaster with your initials monogrammed onto it. What would you say has been one of your biggest lows throughout your career? 
I mean, the only, I mean, listen, every day there's little mini lows, but I think the lows that hit you in the stomach is if someone ever leaves. That's always the worst feeling ever. And, and I've been so lucky because my team have been with me for so long and we've all worked together for, you know, some of them 15, some of them 20 years. But if there's ever a low, um, that that would always be the one that that's the sort of the punch in the stomach. It's all about the people. It's all about the people you work with. So I guess I'll probably pick that. And conversely, your greatest high? Listen, again, there's, there's little moments every day. I think probably one of the greatest high when I got my first big order. And I remember I was in Golden Square in London. I remember ringing my mother from a red phone box that's, that dates it, doesn't it? Um, but that was just those moments when you sort of punch the air and, and kind of realise it's a real business. Oh, Anya, I'm I'm going to hand over to you to read your letter to your younger self. I think you can tell that this has been a thrilling moment for me to actually speak to you and have time with you. So thank you so, so much for your time. And I leave you to share a little bit of your soul with us today. Well, just to say thank you, it's been equally thrilling for me. And um, fangirl right back, by the way. So just thank you so much. It's been a real honour. <laughs> Don't say that. I'm just going to have to pop over champagne tonight because of that. I'm writing, I'm reading rather, a, a letter that actually I wrote to my 21-year-old son who turned 21 last weekend. So I'm writing, I've rewritten it, but it is actually based on this letter I wrote to him. So I'm uh, writing it, therefore, to my 21-year-old self from my 53-year-old self, which is how old I am today. So, dear me, firstly, happy birthday. I'm going to start by saying well done for being nice. I watched you at dinner the other night and saw you make sure that your grandmother wasn't stranded and that your cousin was included in the conversation. There's a lot of pressure at your age to be cool, but what is really cool is to be kind. And don't forget to be kind to yourself too. So this next stage is important and really exciting. The end of education and the start of real life. Education and everything up to this point has only been the warm-up act for real life. The years between now and 53 go really quickly. I can tell you that because I'm 53 now. These years, though, are the most exciting ones and the ones where you will make the difference. My advice is never be ordinary. Be very focused from now on on success. Do be focused on making money, sorry to say, as that makes you safe, but more importantly, gives you freedom and allows you to help others. But do start everything from passion, as that is what gives you success. Do work very hard, or as there is not much success without hard, hard work. But if you start from passion, then it won't actually feel like work. Don't do what everyone else does. When they zig, you must zag, as that is how you find opportunity. But do always listen to your gut. It is always right. And as you get older, you will learn to understand your gut instinct better and read it well. And be informed. Spend half an hour every day listening or reading the news. Build and invest in family, the one that you're given and the one that you will make. It is your safe harbour, your rock when needed and a natural social service there for you in hard times, no questions asked. An unhappy family is such a waste of good energy. It's just as easy to have a happy family as an unhappy one. It's just a choice of how you behave. Remember too to delay criticism. A good sleep always gives a new perspective. Honour your parents and learn from them. Older people know really good stuff and be positive. Positivity leads to more positivity. Be trustworthy, be loyal. So many people aren't and show up. Always go to the funeral. You can never go back and do it again. Same for important family events. Do things. You will never know at the outset what they lead to. But looking back, it'll be that one thing that you nearly didn't do that led to everything. And celebrate everything. Protect your health, as you will soon realise that this is the most valuable thing you possess. 
period. And learn to love your looks. You will look back and wish that you had. And feel free to experiment with your hair better than tattoos, which you mostly regret. But do remember that you have a big nose. Remember the ants. We were all scurrying here and there, just like little ants. Not much of it matters. And the things that you think of as the end of the world mostly aren't. Focus on the big picture. Every year, take stock of how you're doing. Write a list, a life plan, amend it, be objective. Am I safe? Am I making strides? Am I happy? Am I making people around me happy? How am I doing against my plans? Don't drift and save and write a diary. It's fun to look back and otherwise, frankly, you won't remember anyway. Please also, though, protect the planet we live on. Take the word disposable out of your vocabulary and apply common sense to the way you behave. It's not rocket science, but do everything now and do it urgently to protect our incredible planet on which we all depend before it is too late. An inhospitable, overheated planet is a very serious and frightening prospect. Always surround yourself with nice people, but do push yourself a bit beyond comfortable in everything that you do. It's good to be scared, not horribly scared, there's, there's no merit in that, but just enough so you are challenging yourself each time. Remember, fear equals excitement. They are the same emotion, and know that if you are determined enough, you can do almost anything. So, my love, at this point in time, well, everything, well, nearly everything is possible. What a moment this is. Use your magic well between 21 and 53. That's 32 Christmases, 32 summer holidays. Don't waste any of it. And now is probably the time to stop smoking. Love me. <laughs> oh, what a brilliant bloody letter. I mean, really fantastic. I heard that you were referred to as one of the nicest women in business and I too have to concur. Thank you, Anya, for your time and um, <laughs> you're a real role model to me and uh, I'm going to go and have a little blub now for this moment in time. But <laughs> you're running to a meeting. Bless you. Thank you so much. Well, right back at you. Thanks so much. We'll speak very soon. Lots and lots of love. Take care. If you enjoyed my conversation with Anya Heinmarsh, CBE, I'd love to suggest listening to my chat with the incredible Joe Malone. You can find any of my past episodes by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 